Uh, before we get into Revelation, uh, I asked David to bring something uh, just to give you an illustration. So, David, if you could call this assembly to attention, I'd appreciate it. Wherever you want to go, man. Come on up. Yeah. Tough. Go for it. Just No, it's not on. You want it on? Just go blow it. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Oh, here, why don't you come over here then, if you want. <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're getting a little educated here today. But anyway, this here is called, um, in Hebrew, we call it a shofar. It's, just a, it, it's a trumpet. Uh, it's a ram's horn. It's authentic. It is from Israel, so that's great. Um, anyway, in, in the Bible, um, in Leviticus chapter 23, we do learn about a, a biblical holiday called the Feast of Trumpets. And um, this has a real important role uh, in our history for us, as our future as well. Uh, how many know what the rapture is all about? Amen, amen, I know. Okay, so this, uh, we... You know, it says at the sound of a trumpet, you know, believers will be caught up in the air. And um, we believe that it's, it's the sound of this that we will hear soon. Uh, and that will tell us when the Lord, when we'll see the Lord in the air. So it, it plays a very important role in biblical life, but in our life as well. And um, I'm going to just give you a real quick shout out for uh, how, how it sounds so Dave can start. This is actually really hard. Nice job. I have a small shofar in my office. But we're still here. <laughs> I have a small shofar in my office, and I was trying to even get a sound out of it, and I couldn't do it, so I called David. I'm like, David, three questions. Do you have a shofar? Could you blow it for us, and are you coming tonight? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, all right, well, let's pray, and we'll get started in Revelation chapter 8 tonight as we move forward through the book of Revelation. Heavenly Father, Lord, that uh, sound of the trumpet blowing, the call to worship for your people, Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, of course, we look forward to that trump that David was expressing to us of your catching up of the church. But for now, Lord, we do ask that you teach us. Uh, Lord, don't just uh, let us leave with head knowledge, but apply your word in our hearts and in our minds so that we can do what you call us to do. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Revelation 8. We're moving into the trumpet judgments, so we will we'll begin. We're just—it's 13 verses tonight, so we're going to read straight through, and then we'll go back and start talking about the these uh, the smaller parts of the passage. So, Revelation chapter eight and verse one. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and, the, and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood. And, there were th- and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. As we get into tonight's study, I just want to remind you kind of where we're at within the context of the book. In Revelation chapter 1, we saw Jesus Christ glorified and getting ready to give this vision, this prophecy to John on the island of Patmos. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we saw Jesus, the head of the church, and with his messages to the seven churches, In chapter 5, we see Jesus, the only one worthy to redeem the earth, the only one worthy to open up the scroll. And in chapter 6, we see Jesus beginning to open up the the seals, the seven seals on this scroll. And as these seals have been broken open, chapter 7, we had a little bit of a break after the sixth seal had been broken open, and we had the sealing of of 144,000 Jews, and we saw a redemption of the, or uh, uh, a prayer of those who had been martyred during the Great Tribulation. And now we arrive at chapter 8 for the seventh and final seal. Now, these seals are very important, and of course, the seventh seal is the most important because from the seventh seal, we're going to have seven trumpets and seven bowls. At the seventh trumpet, the announcement of Jesus Christ's kingdom come is going to happen. And, and so we're going we're gonna to proceed forward through these judgments. Now, something I want you to realize about this is that God is not just out to judge. It's not like he can't wait to judge and bring calamity and death to people. No, it's actually quite the opposite. What we find about God is he's very long-suffering and patient. It's interesting that Psalm 19, um, I'm sorry, Second um, Peter Chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient towards the people of earth. 
He's continued to be patient. And I want to suggest to you, just to look back to the exodus of Egypt as we look at this tribulation period. Because we're going to see some similarities. First of all, what we saw is that God had predicted to Abraham that the people of Israel would be down in Egypt for 400 plus years. And then at the, at the end of the fulfillment of the sin of the peoples of the land of Canaan, then God would bring them out of Egypt and he would bring judgment upon these people. And we know that, that not only did God judge Egypt with these, the ten plagues that we, we recognize, and of course as God is judging Egypt, he's also showing himself to be God. And did you notice, do you remember what Pharaoh's response was as God judges Egypt and as each plague comes, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He's going to continue hardening himself. He's going to continue in his pride making God and God's people his enemy. That's what we saw in Egypt. And, of course, then Israel comes out of the land and they come judging the peoples of the land of Canaan and conquering. Here we see something very similar. God has been patient with humanity. Patient. While we curse him, while we say there is no God, while we worship false things, worship created things rather than the creator, while we worship money, whatever it is we choose to worship and however it is we choose to deny him and his holiness and continue on in our sin, what we see is a very patient God, slow to anger. But that doesn't mean that he's slow in fulfilling his promises. It doesn't mean that he's not going to judge. And finally in the book of Revelation, that's what we're coming to here is God's judgment being poured out. Notice it says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Awkward, isn't it? Especially when Revelation chapter 4 There's been praise and worship about God and Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And Revelation chapter 5, they're continuing to sing the praises of the Lamb. And there's so much, so much happening up in heaven. There's so much going on. And then all of a sudden, this seal breaks open. Prior to that, there was, come, look, the angel said to me. And there was all this chatter and talk and worship of God. And now, this seal breaks open. Silence. Silence. You know something's about to happen. It's amazing how sometimes silence can be a little comforting to us. We can be like, oh, hey, this is good. But other times silence is actually quite scary. Silence is like there should be talking happening. I, like when you disappoint somebody that you really look up to and they're just silent with you. It's like, oh, man, just say something, you know. When there's an awkward silence with that. I remember one time I was, we were on a youth retreat. And uh, we had to hike a mile into this cabin because it was off the road about a mile. And it happened to be just the perfect weather conditions where it was snowing. So we got out of our car. We hiked a mile in the snow, got to the cabin. Everybody got settled in. And then one of the girls said, oh, no, I lost my, I think it was a bag of medicine or something important. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) So I went back out into the snow. And snow is so weird how it just makes everything so quiet. 
And you're just like, what? So I started hiking. I had my little headlamp, and I was hiking through the snow. And, you know, the, the sound of my feet was a little bit amplified, but still it had an eerie quietness to us. And as I'm walking through the snow, I'm just thinking about the mountain lion that's going to eat me. Uh, I'm good for at least two meals. I'm sure of it. But, uh, you know, when there's supposed to be noise and there's silence, you know something serious is going to happen. When we have a moment of silence, when we remember those who have passed or to honor somebody, it's not a time of rejoicing. It's a time of sorrow. And there's this moment of silence in heaven. Why is it a moment of silence? I don't know. I think maybe heaven knows what's about to happen. What's about to happen to the earth. Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. These seven particular angels standing before God, holding seven trumpets, getting ready to use them. And another angel came and stood in the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. If you do a study of the temple or the tabernacle uh, when Israel was in their wanderings, what we learn is there's a model set up for us of Israel's temple or tabernacle. And it's a, a physical model of a heavenly throne. And maybe you're not familiar with the temple, but just as you go into the temple, you have the outside part where the animals are offered, and you go in, and and on the inner part, there's the temple of showbread, and there's some uh, candle fixtures and so on. And then you go into the inner part, and in the inner part, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is uh, underneath the, uh, there's two cherubim on top of it, and that seat is called the mercy seat, amazingly enough. And by the way, that ark is just a wonderful representation of the throne of God sitting on the mercy seat enthroned by the cherubim. But in that room across from the ark is an altar of incense, this small altar. And in fact, I've got a little picture for you guys of the, uh, there we go. Here's a little picture of the altar of incense. It was acacia wood plated in gold. And, and the, the, the top of the, the altar, which you can't see from this picture, is kind of like, a, I guess, a barbecue grill for all intents and purposes. And then on top of that grill would go the censer with specific incense that was only to be used for the temple. It was never to be used anywhere else. It was supposed to be completely holy or set apart for God. And so this incense would go up night and day before God, this burning within the Holy of Holies. And we, we know that Zechariah in the book of Luke, he, he goes in to the temple to bring in that incense when he finds out that he's going to have a son, John the Baptist. And, of course, he doesn't believe it, so he can't speak for a year. And then finally he, he gets to speak. But that's what he was servicing. So this In the model, the earthly model, you have this incense. Of course, in the heavenly actual, what we find is that incense is the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of you and me and all those who have gone before and all those who will come after if if the Lord tarries. It's It's our prayers. You know what's amazing about this chapter is as we get into these judgments and all this calamity that's happening on the earth... What we see is God is answering prayer. I wonder if you've thought about that. When things like Paris happen, 
and we cry out, Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, stop this wickedness. When we pray for all the unborn dead in our country, Lord, please protect. Lord, be just, give us justice. That's what's going to get answered here. But I don't know about you, but to me it gives me a wonderful, a wonderful peace knowing that when I pray before God, my prayers are like incense before the altar of God. He hears me. It doesn't go away. And I, I don't know if you've been in a room where there's incense, but it fills up the whole room. You can't escape from it. It's everywhere. Those prayers aren't lost. It's not like my desk is like, okay, where was that folder paper? Okay, it was, you know, it's not like that. God knows exactly where it is. And this, this angel, and by the way, the ESV translates it a little funny where it says, uh, at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. It's really the incense of the prayers of all the saints. That's kind of a little bit better translation. The ESV tried to be a little over-literal here. Um, so it almost sounds like the incense and the prayers, but the prayers are the incense. And our prayers go up before the Lord. And I want you to realize, maybe you're not a person of prayer. But... It's, to me, it's amazing that I can pray and my prayer sits before the God of all the earth, the God of creation, the one who actually has the power to act. Now, sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes sometimes it's like, Lord, save, Lord, save, Lord, help me. And it seems like help is afar off. Other times it's, it, it, sometimes it's, all right, I'm going to be with you, but you've got to learn through this experience. I'm going to teach you and shape you. Sometimes it's just a straight up no. Nope, not going to happen. My wife and I at one time were pr- praying about planting a church in Utah. And, and uh, we thought, we, at first we thought that it was like, okay, this is really going to happen. Uh, we actually went out to Utah and we were looking at houses and, and uh, <laughs> we were pretty sure. But then it was a no. And then this happened. So, yay. Uh, <laughs> So, um, no, but, but it, was a, it was a clear no. And uh, other times, other times it's a yes. Yes, do this. Yes, go do it. Yes, I'm going to provide for this. You know, uh, one of the sure signs of God being with us is God providing for us. You know, you're, I, I, I love it when people come to me and they say, yeah, I'm, I'm praying about whether I should do this. And they'll tell me, yeah, you know, God's provided the funds, he's provided this, and he's provided that, and he's provided that. I'm just not sure if it's the Lord's will. I'm like, uh, I'm pretty confident it is. <laughs> Look how the Lord's opened up the door and provided for you. So prayer is important for the believers. And notice in this scene in heaven, we see the, the prayer like incense before the Lord. The psalmist says this, Psalm 141.2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Listen, believers, you should be praying. If you're not praying, you need to start praying. And I'm not talking about praying right before you go to bed. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You know, not talking about that. I'm talking about you should be praying. You should wake up in the morning. If that means getting up a little bit early so you can pray for your church, your fellowship, pray for people that are struggling, pray for... Uh, events going on in the world, pray for your day, pray for your own self and your actions, asking the Holy Spirit to, to really search you and teach you, you should be praying. It, 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 
it doesn't make sense for you not to pray. And I know this sounds like a guilt trip, and it is. So <laughs> if you're not praying, you need to start praying. So, and, and you might say, well, what's the lesson? What's the how-to on pray? You just start praying. Open up your Bible, start reading your Bible, and then pray it. Just start praying. And here's, here's how you learn to pray. You just do it. It's like me learning how to swim or any other sport I've ever done. I wasn't great at first at it. In fact, there were a couple times I wanted to throw it down and leave. But I just did it. Take your phone and put it away during that time of prayer. Take those distractions and pray. I think if you commit yourself to prayer, you're going to find out that you don't have enough time to pray. It's not that hard. We go on here to the first trumpet. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this censer gets thrown towards the earth. I mean, this, the imagery here is so awesome. I, I, I don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, I, I, I don't think I can speculate for you about what's exactly happening as this all, this, these prayers get tossed towards the earth and this fire. And, but here's what we do know. There's an announcement of what's happening. Thunder, peals of lightning, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the second earthquake we've, we've come to in Revelation. And now we have the trumpets that are prepared to blow. The first angel blows his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Um, so there's no need, I said this last week and the week before, there's no need to make an allegory out of these things. Here's what we know. We don't, we don't know exactly how this is going to happen, but here's what we know. The first trumpet, a third of the vegetation on the earth is going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. A third of the vegetation. So what, what does that mean? Well, we're going to see that uh, grass is gone, gone. Now, those of you guys who have installed your water-friendly landscaping, <laughs> you put in your rock and stuff like that, I don't, I don't think that's going to help at all in this, <laughs> in this scenario. So <laughs> we're going to see a vegetation gone, lumber gone. We're going to see, I mean, I'm sure famine is going to follow this. Think about when vegetation is gone, there's no crops, a third of the earth. So the, the, what the outcome is going to bring from this. Now, what could this be? Well, we know that there's hail and there's fire mixed with blood. I, I'm not really sure what the mixed with blood is. Uh, we don't know if that's uh, something that looks like blood or if it's the blood of, of the, the death that happens, the death toll that comes with it. But the, the effect is great. Look at the second trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain, mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. You should, by the way, next time you go to the store and there's a guy from Greenpeace out there, you should share this verse with them. <laughs> Save the wells. Well, do you know that a third of them, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's just being antagonistic. That's being a Dave Johnson. <laughs> so I was the third, the youngest, so I know how to poke at people more than <laughs> I'm really good at it. I had two older sisters. So, But no, what happens here is this, this mountain, what was something like a great mountain, 
uh, burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, I, I, this kind of sounds like a volcano of some sort blowing up. Um, you know, Mount Vesuvius, when it blew, um, it's interesting to read an account of that from Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger uh, described his own uncle's death because his uncle tried to go in and save people and he got trapped by the, sea, the surf and then he choked on the smoke. But this is what he says. He says, we also saw the sea sucked away and apparently forced back by the earthquake. At any rate, it receded from the shore so that quantities of sea creatures were left stranded on dry land. On the landward side, a fearful black cloud was rent by forked and quivering bursts of flame and parted to reveal great tongues of fire like flashings of lightning magnified in size. So as Pliny the Younger describes this, he says that the, the volcano caused a tsunami, and the tsunami left all these dead sea animals up on the shore. I mean, this is terrible. And then, of course, we have Krakatoa in more recent history. When that blew um, in 1883, the resulting deaths of that, now, again, we're talking 1883 when this mountain blew up, uh, 36,000 people died from Krakatoa blowing up. The, the sound of Krakatoa blowing was heard from 3,000 miles away. And, of course, sunsets all over the world for the next two years were amazing from the ash. Krakatoa, that one volcano. Now, of course, nowadays Krakatoa is much larger. It's, it's grown back up. And it, I guess it grows like 16 feet a year, which is pretty, pretty impressive since then. But what we see is this catastrophe happening that causes a third of the living creatures a third of the ships, the whole shipping industry, and all the, the sea creatures to die. It's going to be awful. I think at this point, we should look at Romans real quick. Let's, let's actually turn over to Romans chapter 1. As we, we talk about this, this section in Revelation. Romans chapter 1. God says this, or Paul writes this from, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So how is the wrath of God revealed? By people suppressing the truth, by people's unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the creation, the wonderful ocean, the grass, the trees, all these things in the first two trumpets that have, are, are dying were supposed to be evidences, proofs to you and me that God is the creator. The psalmist says this, it says, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Isn't it amazing that man has started worshiping the creation? How often do you hear, uh, well, if the universe wills it, you know, that's a common saying today. This, the universe, something, something in the universe, maybe if I get lucky with the universe, Denying God, suppressing the truth of God. And of course, in our schools, evolutionary theory has taught us fact. Denying the truth of God. 
suppressing the truth, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Romans goes on to say this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why is God judging? Why is his wrath being poured out now on the earth? Because man worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Man has suppressed the truth. And God is saying, okay, we're moving. God is redeeming the earth. And so we see the first two things, the vegetation and the ocean. Third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This is interesting. I, I don't know if we have a star named Wormwood. I forgot to look that up. Maybe we do. Uh, but God knows that there's a star named Wormwood out there. Um, so this is, uh, you know, I speculate that this might be some meteor hitting the earth in some way. Uh, so we've had all of a sudden a loss of a third of the vegetation of the earth, a loss of a third of the sea and the shipping industry and the animals, and now a meteor hits. Man, you know the people of the earth at this time are going, what is happening here? What is going on? I don't think they're actually saying that. I think they know that God is judging. Just like Moses went before Pharaoh with his brother Levi, or Aaron. Just like he went before Pharaoh with Aaron and he said, this is what the Lord God says, let my people go. And every single time Pharaoh said, nope, nope, not going to do it. Or he said yes and then didn't do it. The judgment was pronounced, Pharaoh ignored it, and God continued to pour it out. The judgment has been being announced. It's been, it's been, it's, we've been announcing it, that it's coming, and people are ignoring it. They're continuing to worship the creation rather than the creator. So this, this star fell from heaven, wormwood. Uh, the idea there is it's bitterness, uh, it's poisonous. Now think about this, a third of the rivers... The waters became wormwood. Now, when we think of a river, you might think of a small stream or something like that. But think for a minute about how much uh, the, the greatest rivers in the world, the Amazon, the Mississippi, you're talking these huge rivers systems, and a third of them become poisonous, poisoning springs and all sorts of things. The next trumpet, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now all of a sudden we see a dimness and a darkness come over the earth. And um, by the way, have you noticed here that we're talking in thirds constantly? Um, God is showing through this entire judgment that he controls how much. He's showing his control of these, and his sovereignty. He's only allowing a third to be burned up, a third to be scorched, a third of the light to shine, to be darkened. God is always in control. Make no mistake about that. He's in control of these judgments. 
as they're poured out on the earth. And I, and a part of this is we're going to see that God is be actually going to be merciful with the creation as he judges so that people can turn to him. People can receive the gospel and the truth and, and, and actually receive some mercy as they go through these judgments through knowing Jesus Christ. So we see that a third of, of the moon is darkened, a third of the sun is struck. Now what does that look like? Well, you know, it could be ash from the volcanoes. It could be nuclear winter. You know, there's all sorts of speculations that have been put out there. But we know it's not going to be good. It's going to be terrible. And that's why the Bible calls it that great and terrible day. It's going to be terrible. Then look what happens next. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now the, the KJV and the NKJV share something a little different here. They say an angel crying out. Um, the, the, the more modern translations interpret it eagle, which is probably a little more accurate translation for the word. Now we, we saw in heaven there was an angel with an eagle face. We don't know if it's that. We're, I'm not really sure about the creature, but what we do see is this creature is announcing the worst is yet to come. That there's more to come and it's way worse that's coming. And it announces these three woes of trumpets still yet to be blown. And, and you have to look at this and go, already we had at the earlier seals with the, the four horsemen and the, the earthquake there and the cataclysmic features that happened before. We've got to be exhausted. And now there's more happening. And now an angel warns everybody. Announces this woe. Jesus also announced some woes, if you remember. Woe to the Pharisees. He gave them seven woes for their, their fake religion, for their rejection of him. You know, as we look at these scriptures, I really want to encourage you to know what you're living for. To really consider why, why you're in this church. Why you're coming to worship service. Hopefully it's not to have a sense of feeling good. Hopefully it's for God to convict. That's why we come to church, Christians, so that God will convict us. Now, I'm not saying that I come to church to feel guilty. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we know that God's conviction in our lives, our interaction with the divine will of God, brings about that sanctification, that work of us being made holy and, and being used for his kingdom. That's why I hope you come to church. Lord, convict me. Lord, maybe there's things in my life that need to go. Time is short. I should be living for you. And you might say, well, maybe God's not going to come in my lifetime. That's true, but your life is pretty short when you think about it in the scope of the world. Let's see, if you get a long life, maybe 90s, maybe in the 100s, I, I don't know. Most people don't live that long. And, of course, we don't know that we're not going to be taken suddenly through death. And we don't know that Christ won't return now, now, no now. We just don't know when Christ is going to come for his church. But, but having the understanding that Christ is coming, having the understanding that the world will end in disaster and catastrophe... I say, well, I love the people of the world. I love my family who are unsaved. I love these people. But what do we do about it? Are we praying? Are we sharing the gospel with people? 
Are we living for Christ? Are we shining like stars? Or are we just coming to church? That's the challenge. The angels are announcing God's judgment and his gospel. Remember in the last chapter we saw that the angels going back and forth throughout the heavens proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Sorry, chapter 6. How do we live our lives? I, I ask you the question, if tomorrow you knew the Lord was coming, what would you do tonight? What would you do? Listen, Christians, we were talking about this in my Sunday school class this morning, and uh, one of the things I was saying is that, you know, we don't live our lives recklessly. We plan for tomorrow. We, we, we don't go buying things we can't afford. We don't go wasting money. We don't go throwing caution to the wind. We live for tomorrow, or we, we plan for tomorrow, but we live for right now. We redeem the time for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying to become legalistic about these things. You've still got to live life, but please keep that in your mind. You know, I think we've kind of become jaded with people being heralds of the coming of Christ because throughout history there have been so many people that have predicted the end of the world. They've, uh, they, <laughs> I mean, you can go all the way back to the first century and you have Jews predicting the end of the world and the coming of Messiah uh, right when the, uh, the uh, war broke out with uh, Rome uh, right before 70 A.D. But, of course, most recently in the 1800s, you had the Millerites. And, of course, the, the, from the Millerites, we get the Seventh-day Adventists. And it's interesting because the Millerites have a, a, a term for one of their failed prophecies. Uh, Miller, uh, Miller predicted that Christ was going to come back, William Miller. And, and uh, when Christ didn't come back, uh, he said he, he must have miscalculated and he recalculated and, and changed it from March 21st, 1844 to October 22nd. And the sad part about it was we saw everybody giving away all their possessions and, all, and then Jesus didn't come back. And you know what it's referred to now in history? The great disappointment. So what do you do when you predict Jesus comes back and he doesn't come back? Well, you say, well, Jesus did come back spiritually and now we've got to kind of do this. <laughs> we've got to change our tactic. And so they changed their tactic and eventually the Seventh-day Adventist church was born out of that, the great disappointment. And, of course, this was just poor. Jesus told us right from the very beginning, no man knows the day or the hour. We don't know. But we should be living like it's coming right away. Re most recently we had Harold Camping. And you guys probably saw the signs in 2011 all around, the billboards all around. Jesus is coming. The end is coming. Uh, the uh, family radio put up, put up, invested a ton of money in this. Harold Camping was predicting. He said, I've got it worked out. And by the way, Harold Camping had previously predi predicted this earlier on in his ministry. And it was a failed prediction. So he recalculated the day of the rapture and came to May 21st, 2011. Sure enough, I was driving on May 21st, 2011 on the freeway by a billboard. And I remember looking at it going, oh, today's the day. <laughs> and I kept driving. And then the next day happened. He recalculated and said, okay, now I know it's October 21st. And October 21st came and went. Interesting that camping finally came to this conclusion 
in March of 2012, he said this. He said his state, his, uh, his attempt to predict a date was sinful. And especially after reading Matthew 24, 36. Of that day and hour, no man knoweth. You know, we can trust this Bible. We can trust it absolutely to do what, it say, what God says he'll do. He's going to do it. We don't have to go around predicting dates. But what we do know is there will be a judgment coming. And so I encourage you, Christians, grow in prayer and grow in sharing your faith um, as we look at these judgments. God bless you guys and let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time. And um, Lord, I just always need to be reminded to share every day. God, I should be asking you, what's my purpose today, Lord? I know the answer. Share your everlasting gospel. So, Lord, forgive me of those days that I live selfishly for myself, consumed with things of this world or acquiring things and keeping a strong hold on the things of this world rather than a light touch. Lord, I pray that you'd just really help this fellowship to grow. Father, I pray that it would be an incendiary fellowship. And, Lord, I recognize that people are going to say we're crazy. But, Lord, I'd rather them know the truth. You will judge, I know that. Lord, our family members, our neighbors, our unsaved people that we come into contact with every day, Lord, we just ask Holy Spirit for you to start working on their heart. Give us the words to say. Change us. Change us. Set us apart so that we can share with them. We just thank you, God, and ask this in Jesus' name.